everyone. I'm Dr. Sue Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. We've recorded these in the past in a studio, but given uh, a shelter-in-place order, this is our very first time to have a remote recording, and it became a great excuse to bring someone from the outside in. Dr. Tim Johnson from the University of Minnesota. He's a nationally recognized expert about the Supreme Court, so I'm really excited to have a chance to talk to him. Thanks for speaking with us, Tim. Oh, thanks for having me, Sue. It's great to be here. So I guess I'm going to start out um, more generally in, in thinking about the Supreme Court itself. And I know that it's established by the Constitution. And I was curious, um, under the Articles of Confederation, was there a similar court established? You know, so it turns out that there was not a U.S. Supreme Court under the Articles of Confederation. And in fact, there wasn't an, ex an executive branch either. All we really had was Congress. And so you would think that sort of like the English system that is run by Parliament, where Parliament is all powerful. And I think that that's what the framers were thinking about. So they, even though they knew that courts would exist, and that state courts existed throughout the United States with some very powerful ones, like the Supreme Court of Virginia and the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, they simply didn't go about thinking that they needed to create a court under the Articles of Confederation. So no, it didn't exist. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was definitely a lean and mean government with just just a Congress of sorts. Um, so I'm wondering, what did the Constitution then call for? Because I know the Constitution can be a little on the vague side. And so what did they, when they're defining a Supreme Court, what did they ask for? Yeah, so I love that you use the word on the vagues or the phrase on the vague side, because in fact, when it comes to Article 3, which is the article that lays out the judiciary for the federal government, the court was incredibly vague. So the way that I talk about this from time to time is just to look at the word count, to be perfectly honest. Article 3 has 375 total words to lay out the entire federal judiciary. Now, it's not as if the rest of the Constitution was all that long either, but the Article 2 that lays out the executive is about three times as long. It took 1,023 words to lay out the executive. And it turns out that you get uh, almost five to, or more than five times the length of description for the legislature. And that uh, Article 1 came in at 2,265 words. Oh, and wow. so in sense, the, the, the framers didn't, again, think a whole lot about the judiciary. Now, in some sense, that makes sense because most of these old white males were lawyers they had worked in the common law system in England. They were sort of hoping to create a common law system. And in some sense, you would think that they just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, we know how courts work. We don't need to lay it out. So most broadly, it is incredibly vague and they didn't say much. Okay. I'm wondering uh, if you could sort of explain what an appellate court is. Um, when I, I think, you know, we watch TV and we see you know, lawyers in a like criminal case with the jury. And, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't work that way. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what its purpose is. Yeah, that's right. That's a really good question. So, you know, when we watch Law and Order, which we can now all watch 24-7 mm -hmm. on about five 
different channels in the United States. Right. We see trial courts. And by and large, when you see, I think Law and Order has done the best over the past 30 years of sort of explaining how our trial courts work. But we rarely, if ever, see an appellate court in action. And in fact, there were two TV shows in the late 90s, early 2000s that tried West Wing style to focus on the U.S. Supreme Court. And they both flopped after fewer than eight episodes because Mm -hmm. the ins and outs and the minutia of the U.S. Supreme Court are sort of so arcane um, and also so foreign to most people in the United States that that the insider baseball that went on in the West Wing just didn't translate to those shows. So an appellate court is a court that will hear an appeal. And of course, the word appellate comes from the word appeal or vice versa. I never remember which way it goes, but you would be unhappy with the decision from a trial court. And obviously, if you're unhappy, you're probably the one who lost in our adversarial system. And so we have appellate courts to sort of be a check on the trial courts to look and see if an error was made to make sure that the trial court judge was applying the law in the correct way. And so you can appeal to in the best way to think about it is to a higher authority to interpret what the law really might mean if a trial court judge might get it wrong. And we see appellate courts both at the state level as well as at the federal level. And so in the U.S., Uh, federal judiciary, you've got trial courts, which we call U.S. District Courts. And then we have U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And if you're unhappy with uh, how your trial went that first time around, whether it's civil or criminal, you can appeal to the circuit court geographically uh, that is tied to your district court. And then if you don't like the decision there, you can uh, appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, And what is interesting about appellate courts is, I mean, among other things, is that Article 3 of the Constitution only created one appellate court. And the direct quote from Article 3 is that the the federal government will have one Supreme Court and such inferior courts as Congress may from time to time establish. And so there were no other uh, appellate courts in the United States. And you could imagine that not being that big of a deal back in 1789, uh, 1790, because in fact, there weren't that many people, there weren't that many cases. But we really, I don't think, could imagine the U.S. Supreme Court hearing cases from all 370 million people in the United States today. And so Congress did um, begin to create courts. And I know that we'll talk about that at some point. But the bottom line on appellate courts is they are hearing matters of law where a trial court may have, in fact, made a mistake or at least an alleged mistake based on the losing party at trial. Okay. I know one of the things I've always found so interesting about the Washington administration is this idea of inventing a country and figuring out things. And so I know the Judicial Act of 1789 um, tries to just set things up. So is it making amends for the vaguely worded Constitution? Um, what is What does it mean or what does it do? Yeah, I think that's um, that's spot on and making amends, if you will. So the Constitution, as set out by the framers, was not a self-enforcing document. And that sounds like a little insider baseball as well. But essentially, it is that vagueness that you talk about. The framers said, we have this sort of big time idea of what we want the government to look like, but we're going to need to flesh out all of those details later on. And so with it not being self-enforcing, they knew immediately Congress was going to have to start passing laws um, in order to flesh out or put some meat on the bones, if you will, of the document. It turns out that the Judiciary Act of 1789 was the single first piece of legislation Congress passed when it came into session because 
Article one laid out the legislature pretty well. Article two laid out the executive pretty well. And as I uh, insinuated a couple of minutes ago, it really did a pretty bad job or a very vague job of laying out the judiciary. So they get the the not being incredibly creative. They name it the Judiciary Act of 1789. And as an aside, we have had dozens of Judiciary Acts between 1789 and 2000 or 2020. So first major piece of legislation and the first thing that Congress does is create two new levels of courts. Now, I've already referred to them, district courts and circuit courts. But those courts were actually fundamentally different than we know them today. Neither was necessarily an appeals court. For the most part, they were trial courts. And as I tell my students at the University of Minnesota, the district courts would hear what were sort of mundane legal issues, whether civil or criminal. And the circuit courts would by and large hear more major cases. And then I add the caveat, don't ask me what a major or a mundane case was in 1789, because it wasn't incredibly clear to the framers either. But so they had these two sets of courts at the district courts. It's just like a trial court. You would have today one judge. He because there would probably have been no female judges back then would make a decision. The circuit courts that heard the more major cases was made up of a three judge panel. It was two Supreme Court justices and one district court judge. And so they would hear those cases. And then the odd part about that is because you had two Supreme Court justices hearing a case, and if it got appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, they would end up hearing that case again. And so the Judiciary Act sets up those two lower courts. The second thing it does is it does explain what the Supreme Court is, because Article 3, or how the Supreme Court is made up, Article 3 only says one Supreme Court. And in order for a court to run, you only need one judge. So the assumption was there would just be one chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And that certainly even at that time couldn't work. So the Judiciary Act second creates the Supreme Court with one chief justice and five associate justices, which is a little bit odd because that's six justices. And and we know that it's much easier to get ties when you have an even number of judges than when you have an odd number. Ergo, in debate all across the country, whether high school or college, you and I both know that, in fact, when you get to higher rounds, finals of tournaments or the national championship, you always have a panel of judges and there's always an odd number, which will decrease the probability of getting some sort of tie. The last thing that I'll say um, about the Judiciary Act, and the reason I'm going to say this is it's going to be important for our discussion of Marbury versus Madison, is Section 13 lays out this really bizarre part of the court's jurisdiction. And we didn't talk about it uh, under Article 3, but I'll refer to the court's jurisdiction in Article 3. It has both original jurisdiction, which is very explicit in the Constitution, and then appellate jurisdiction, which is for all intents and purposes, every other type of case, as well as cases Congress may lay out. Section 13 of the Judiciary Act says that Congress is explicitly changing the court's original jurisdiction to include this weird uh, legal argument called a writ, W-R-I-T, of mandamus. And a writ of mandamus put in simple terms, terms that I need to use most of the time in my life, is basically a legal order that a court issues telling a public official to do something. The most infamous of writ to mandamus that we would know in the United States is when the U.S. Supreme Court in the early 1970s told President Richard Nixon to hand over the Watergate tapes. And that will be very important for Marbury, as I said. Okay. So when do we get a larger Supreme Court? 
we, you know, you say it's six and we have nine now. Is it a, a slow process? Is it by the 19th century? That's a great question. Almost, in fact, all of the changes in number happened in the 19th century, right? So in 1780 or in 1790-ish, whatever it is, right in that era, we start with six. In 1807, the number of justices jumps to seven. And, and from what I can tell, that really is meant to get an odd number of justices on the bench. Again, that issue of ties. 30 years later, after John Marshall has died in 1835, so we're in 1837 now, the number jumps to nine. In 1863, as a strategic move, Congress increased the number to 10, and they did that specifically for a political reason to guarantee that there were more Northerners on the bench than Southerners as we were moving into the Civil War. And then, of course, as we all know, President Lincoln is assassinated, Andrew Johnson becomes the president, and nobody, nobody in Washington or anywhere in the United States really had a big love affair with President Andrew Jackson. And in Washington in particular, he was hated. And so Congress actually decreased the number of justices to seven. Now, nobody gets fired, but what happens is the next three justices who retire or die, he doesn't get to replace them. And it was really meant to put the screws to President Johnson. So it turns out, in 1866, when the, the law is passed, to, the Judicial Act is passed to, to make this happen, only two justices end up leaving the bench between 1866 and 1869. And that year is important because in 1869, the U.S. Supreme Court or the U.S. Congress set the number at nine, and it's been there ever since. And the only time we had a fight about it was during the court packing plan um, right after the New Deal happened in 1836-1837. But it's been set solid at nine since 1869. And almost all research, both in political science and in history, suggests that number is probably not going to change. Right. Um, so John Marshall is appointed by Adams as the chief justice, uh, who's the fourth one. And you know, I, when I when I realized that, I was like, why? Why are there the, the previous three have such short terms? I mean, I think of it as a chief justice is in charge for a long time. Right. I mean, we've had very few chief justices in the history of the United States. Right. Um, so, you know, John Jay was the first chief justice. Um, he's perhaps more famous, uh, um, again, among legal scholars, historians, political scientists and the general public for his uh, partial writing of the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. The reason Jay doesn't stay around so long is that the court at that time was really not prestigious at all. It didn't have its own building. Uh, Congress really thought of it as an afterthought. Most people thought of it as an afterthought. You will note that during its first decade of existence, the court decided fewer than 10 cases per term. And so no one was really listening to it. John Jay gets asked to run for governor of New York, and he says, oh, God, I'm going to run for it. He resigns and he runs for the governor governorship of New York. Now, you can't imagine Andrew Cuomo doing that today. But there was a lot of thought back in the 80s and 90s that his father, Mario, would actually leave the governorship of New York to become a Supreme Court justice. There were a lot of folks who thought Clinton, President Clinton might nominate him. Of course, that never happened. But 
you would never think in 2020 that you would go from being the chief justice to go being a governor. I mean, you're losing all sorts of prestige. John Jay's prestige increased exponentially by taking the governorship of New York. So he leaves for political reasons. The second justice or chief justice is John Rutledge. He was a recess appointment by President Washington. He lasted 138 days because when Congress came back into session, the Senate rejected him as the chief justice. So he was out again for political reasons, but it was out of his hands. Third chief justice is Oliver Ellsworth. He's the chief justice around the time of the the election of 1800, which always reminds me of Hamilton when I utter those words. Um, And he was also a diplomat, which is sort of a bizarre violation of the separation of powers, but it happened on a regular basis back then. So imagine he's chief justice. He's a diplomat in Europe. He writes a letter to President John Adams and says, I'm sick. I can't get back. I'm resigning as chief justice. Ellsworth does eventually get back to the United States and dies a number of years later in Connecticut, but he simply didn't come back from Europe. And so now you've got this open spot, Marbury or Marbury, John Marshall becomes the fourth chief justice. Okay. Um, so maybe it's time to, to talk about Marbury versus Madison. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm always told it's one of the most important decisions of the 19th century. Um, you know, but the the case itself, like what what starts it all can be sort of confusing because, you know, it's like, well, who, who won? Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about the facts of the case and, and what happens? Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of fascinating cases that the Supreme Court has decided. And, and by that, I mean, fascinating in terms of the factual scenario um, that leads to a particular case. Marbury is one of these sordid political controversies. Um, so the election of 1800 happens, and it is the first election uh, to go to the House of Representatives. And it's crazy that it happens that early, but the Electoral College doesn't come up with a winner. Um, the the uh, uh, election is thrown to the House, and things are so fractured that it takes 36 ballots in order for Thomas Jefferson to ultimately become the president of the United States. So he, he ends up winning. He ends up beating Aaron Burr. And Burr becomes his vice president. And this is actually very a very important part of what happens in Marbury because back in 1800, presidents were not inaugurated on January 20th. They were inaugurated in early March. And so this leaves John Adams, who's the last bastion of federalism in uh, the United States in elected office. That leaves him from November to March. So, right almost half a year in order to do things to change the government that might harm the incoming Democratic Republican president, Thomas Jefferson. And the main thing that Adams wants to accomplish is to use what becomes FDR's court packing plan, essentially, in 1936, but this time in 1800, 1801, to pack the court with Federalists. Because not only had Jefferson won the White House, but the Democratic Republicans, who another way you can, or another thing you can call them is states' writers, had basically taken over Congress as well. So the Federalists are out. So Adams says, let's go ahead and get as many Federalists on because Article 3 says you sit on the federal courts that you're appointed to for life. In, in, in other words, in times of good behavior, unless you commit an impeachable offense. So the first thing Adams does is put John Marshall on. This is also a crazy, bizarre 
violation of the separation of powers, because when John Marshall gets on the U.S. Supreme Court, he is still the secretary of state. So imagine, um, uh, I'm thinking of past secretaries of state, Henry Kissinger, um, Condoleezza Rice, um, uh, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry being secretary of state, but also being on the U.S. Supreme Court. And I don't think the United States would have put up with that. But back in the day, John Marshall holds both of those positions for that sort of two and a half, three month span. So Adams says, all right, along with my secretary of state, we are going to pack all levels of the court with federalists. And so they are. And and this is pretty close to very accurate. They are madly just a creating judgeships and b nominating people and getting them confirmed to these judgeships. They get down to the end. And this is where you get this phrase that people talk about often with Marbury, the midnight appointments. And it's that last night before Jefferson is going to take over. Adams is out on his butt on the streets of Washington, D.C., no longer going to be president. And he is signing uh, uh, nominations like mad and things go awry. And a number of those nominations end up staying in his study. Now, the ultimate fault for why some of these nominations were not delivered after they had been signed and sealed actually falls squarely on the shoulders of John Marshall himself, because it is the secretary of state who is supposed to deliver those nominations. Marshall was doing his work at the court, doing some other work as secretary of state. He had loaned, if you will, his brother to John Adams to help Marshall's brother is the one who ultimately failed to deliver these nominations. So you go 24 hours. Jefferson is uh, inaugurated. He comes to the White House. They find in Adams' study this pile of nominations to the federal court. And he says, my God, I know what those are. And he has his new secretary of state, James Madison, by his side. And he says, we're not delivering those. And anybody whose appointment to the federal bench has not been delivered does not get to be a judge. And that's a way we can keep Federalists off the federal court. And one of those appointments happened to be none other than William Marbury, who really, really wanted the judgeship. Now, note one other thing before I, I stop at this point. This was not a particularly important judgeship. William Marbury was going to be a justice of the peace. And today, justices of the peace do things like conduct weddings or do very minor offenses. They don't really have much power. But Marbury had been a banker most of his life. He'd been an ardent federalist. He had done a lot of work and he got this patronage position that he could live out his life, life tenure as a judge, but he was no longer going to get it. So what does he do? What any good red-blooded American does is he sues the Secretary of State, James Madison, for not handing over his appointment. And that's how the case begins to get to the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, that's some crazy politics, but I guess we should be used to it. Um, so <laughs> what does the court decide? So why do we, you know, if it's such an unimportant judgeship, how did this court decision get to be so significant? Yeah, so the significance actually probably was ramped up pretty quickly by Thomas Jefferson himself because he knew this case was coming. And he knew that this was a way that John Marshall could poke 
him in the eye and basically say, yes, you got rid of all these Federalists, but I'm here. I'm running the high bench. I can rule in favor of getting Marbury, but also all of these other uh, men, their seats on the federal judiciary. So Jefferson sort of blew this up immediately by going, in some sense, public with his bully pulpit, as public as you could go in 1801, right? We didn't obviously have 24-7 news cycles on TV or on the internet. But he made it quite clear that if Marbury won that case, that he would go after John Marshall as well as other Federalist justices on the bench. And by go after, I mean try to have them impeached. The threats were made both implicitly and explicitly. And the other thing that Jefferson did is, at the time, the court didn't have just one term per year. It actually had two. It had a fall term and a spring term. And Jefferson, in his power as president, actually nixed two of the terms in 18 or both of the terms in 1802. And so the court actually didn't sit for almost an entire year. He couldn't leave the court hanging in the wind for that long. So in 1803, the court comes back. This is where the threats are sort of made. And the case gets to the court and you start reading the opinion. And I'll be very clear on this. John Marshall wrote this opinion and John Marshall wrote almost every opinion that emanated out of his court between 1801 and 1835 when he uh, died and uh, left the court and then died. Um, And there is some evidence that he may have written a good portion of this decision as well as some of his other famous decisions even before the court heard oral argument in the case. So here's what happens in the case. Marshall asks, poses in his opinion three questions. The first question is, does Marbury have the right to have his judgeship? And the answer that he and his colleagues come up with is, of course he does. You don't need to deliver an appointment in order for that appointment to take take the effect of law. All you need to do is have a president's signature on the appointment. Now, you can imagine... President Jefferson reading the opinion and he sees the answer to this first question and he's probably getting red in the face. He's probably thinking he wants to impeach for political reasons John Marshall because he's already said Marbury should get this appointment. The second question he asks is, is there a place to redress this grievance? That is, does Marbury have a place to go? And again, Marshall answers yes. And his answer is, the logic of the answer is, if you have been denied a right, in this case, the right to a judgeship that you have been dual or you duly won, then you should have a place to go and redress that grievance. Here it would be maybe the courts. So again, you can imagine in your head, Thomas Jefferson reading the answer to that second question and getting even angrier and more red in the face. The final question is, is the U.S. Supreme Court the proper place for Marbury to redress this grievance. And John Marshall says, to the surprise of the entire world, we are not. And this goes back to Section 13 of the 1789 Judiciary Act. And in that act, as I suggested to you earlier, Section 13 changes the court's original jurisdiction. Marshall opines, and probably rightfully so, that the court's original jurisdiction, if you look at Article 3 of the Constitution, is pretty clearly written in stone. It can't be changed unless there's a constitutional amendment. And so what he says is, you've got a right to this commission, you've got a right to ask for a redress of the grievances, 
But in the end, Congress actually messed up by saying that you could come to us directly in our under our original jurisdiction and you can't do it. So, Mr. Marbury, you're out of luck and we are not going to give you your judgeship. And that's really pretty convoluted, but the logic makes sense both legally but also politically because now what happens, there's probably not going to be impeachments for uh, any of the other justices and in particular John Marshall. And and Willie Marbury really just has to go back to his life. And he's really the only loser in this case. But by saying that Jefferson, the named litigant Madison as Secretary of State, actually wins the case, all of the controversy with the court goes away. With an exception, Marshall turns the page and continues with his analysis. So what is of this decision. So, you know, we see, okay, it's always been confusing, you know, that Marbury has the right, but he doesn't have the right. You know, he doesn't get the job. Um, but that's not enough reason for this to be significant. And so that's right. what happens? That's right. And so what happens is you turn that page and you get, what I say to my students is you get a big but, B-U-T dot, dot, dot. And what John Marshall says is, You're right, President Jefferson. You may have won the battle. We're going to give you the battle, and we're not going to put up a fight anymore about this really sort of little-known banker from Baltimore uh, or from Washington, D.C., Willie Marbury. But what we're going to say from here on out is that the federal judiciary is going to have the power of judicial review. And what that means is from here on out, we're going to get to tell you as president Congress as the legislature and the people of the United States, what law is. In other words, Congress passes the law, the president enforces the law, and we're going to tell you whether or not the law is constitutional. And as I tell my students, if they don't learn anything else from me in constitutional law, they should remember the phrase, it is emphatically the province of the judicial department to say what is the law. And that is, I may have missed one or two words, the direct quote that comes out of Marbury versus Madison. We're going to throw Marbury under the bus, but we we are going to, out of whole cloth, give ourselves a whole bunch of power. And that power hopefully will last, and it turns out it has, for more than two centuries. So So that's that's why Marbury is so important. So that's why like the court today can sit and say, Obamacare may be or not be so they're overlooking what Congress says. That's absolutely right. And that's why the court, not only on cases like Obamacare, but same-sex marriage, the death penalty, uh, reproductive rights, criminal rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all of those fall within the province of the court's power under its power of judicial review. And the key to this is Judicial review did not exist in Article 3 of the Constitution. You can go look at the debates the framers had during the Constitutional Convention. They talked about giving the power of judicial review. They never ended up doing so. But what they knew was the Virginia Supreme Court had it. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court had it. Other courts already had the power of judicial review. And in some sense, they may have insinuated or just assumed that, in fact, that power would exist. But it didn't until John Marshall turns that page and says, we're going to give that 
power to ourselves. And it turns out to be a brilliant legal and political strategy because what can Thomas Jefferson do? He can't scream and holler and gnash his teeth because he won the case. And so he says, yeah, you won the case. We throw Marbury under that bus. But now we're going to have power from here on out. And the craziest part of this, and and I don't I, I would be remiss not to talk about this crazy part, is that Jefferson was probably doubly unhappy because he and Marshall had a pretty bad relationship with one another. In fact, they hated one another so much that the the mythology of it is that they couldn't be in the same room together. They were second cousins who couldn't stand the sight of one another. And there's actually four reasons why that's the case and why it's so crazy in the end that Marshall won. The first reason they didn't like one another was, and this is going to sound convoluted, but when you think about it, it, it makes sense. John Marshall married a young woman whose mom had earlier jilted Thomas Jefferson by refusing to marry him. So now you got Marshall marrying uh, the daughter of a woman that Jefferson hates. And when Marshall married him, Thomas Jefferson was still the governor of Virginia. And at the time, it was the governor who had to sign all wedding licenses, all marriage licenses. So Jefferson is all sort of messed up and unhappy with Marshall. Second, um, Marshall was very pro-court power. You get that from what he did in Marbury versus Madison. Jefferson did not, at least historically, seem to want a whole lot of uh, court power. Second or or third, um, Jefferson and Marshall fought vehemently over the treason trial for Aaron Burr. And John Marshall said the Constitution is clear. You need two witnesses to prove treason, and therefore we cannot uphold this treason conviction. And Jefferson was incensed by that because he really didn't like Aaron Burr. And finally, there's very clear evidence that John Marshall believed, tried and true in his heart, that Thomas Jefferson was a dishonest human being and a dishonest politician. And so they didn't like each other. And so Marbury versus Madison ends up being the culmination of the fight these two second cousins had for most of their adult lives. And it turns out that John Marshall brilliantly wins the ultimate war. So I thought um, one of the things I always want to accomplish with the podcast is to look at people in a way we don't in the classroom. And so, you know, I thought if we could maybe even get them Think about them in a 21st century way. And so I've been asking all of our guests uh, to imagine that uh, someone is on Instagram and what kind of hashtags might they use? So for John Marshall, how would he, um, what would his hashtag or hashtags be? God, I, you know what? This was the hardest part of this to prepare for, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I loved it because it was, it was interesting to think about this. So I did come up with some hashtags for John Marshall, but those hashtags all come out of what is historically known about him. And Marshall is actually known as a very Clinton-esque politician, Bill, not Hillary. Um, and that is, he was always the life of the party. Personally, everybody loved him. He was a glad hander. He was a great politician. He was, despite running the court with an iron fist as a politician, he was a really good compromiser. And people always wanted to be around him. And love or hate Bill Clinton, that is sort of what his persona has always been since he came onto the scene in the early 90s. That was John Marshall. And so he was a really sort of beloved um politician and then ultimately uh, chief justice who had a very uh, strong judicial philosophy about having a strong court and a strong federal government. 
And so if I think about hashtags for him, I would think about, I would think hashtag father Gotis, um, hashtag strong, uh, hashtag federal government power. He was not a believer in states' rights, so I could think of a hashtag um, as hashtag 10th Amendment is dead. Um, and the final one was uh, hashtag judicial review rocks. Uh, and those were sort of the ones that I thought might uh, sort of lay out who he was when he was on the court. How about poor William Marbury? He lost his job. Yeah, poor Marbury. Uh, I thought um, uh, hashtag I want my seat. Um Hashtag good life, but I want more. Um, and finally, hashtag being a banker probably isn't so bad. All right. This, I learned so much from this. Uh, I, I really appreciate talking to you and you've clarified um, a lot of the reasons behind what happened. So thank you so much for talking to us today. And uh, I'm going to try to hit you up to interview you on something else in the future. It's really good to see you, Sue. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's been great. I had a great time. Thanks a lot.